being in a place of receptivity. That's comfort to me. Because if I'm not receptive, I can't really move forward. Like if I'm uncomfortable, if I'm unsafe, if I'm in that frantic state or that shutdown state, there's not growth. But we think that you have to be uncomfortable to grow. But I actually disagree with that. Hello and thanks for joining us. I am your host, behavioral coach Jeffrey Biesecker. And that was today's guest, Marina Yanetrine. We're all on the journey to discover the light inside, that beacon which guides us to live our truest, most authentic self. This is episode number 92. In Latin, human beings are homo sapiens, loosely translated as the man who knows. Yet within each of us remain parts unknown, unseen, repressed in unrecognized trauma, realized and felt, yet one can't quite put a finger on. The impact of recovering memories repressed for years can be debilitating. As one goes through significant trauma, the brain shuts down, disassociation then taking over, seeking an inner sense of safety from the challenges of trauma, your mind doing what it needs in order to keep it safe. These regular regressions are all indicative of memories unlocked. Today we explore the various ways repressed trauma can come back to you in this discussion with transformative coach Marina Yane Triner. Whether that inner voice is a whisper or a scream, honey, it's just the trauma talk. Tune in today to find out what it might be trying to say on this episode of The Light Inside. Welcome to the Light Inside Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm looking forward to this discussion today with our guest, Marina Yane Triner. Having done the work to uncover my own experiences with childhood trauma, I know the importance of unearthing these often buried events which hinder our personal journeys of evolution and growth. Let's dive right in. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Marina. How are you? Good. How are you? Awesome. I'm doing well. <laughs> it's been an interesting kind of week. I've had an extremely busy schedule, just jam-packed with calls, and I had several of them not show up. And I had to kind of pause for a moment to realign myself because I was starting to feel that urge to react to it. And wondering why so many of them in one week. It was just kind of odd. You know, one of those things where it just sort of started happening and the ball just kept rolling. This falls in line with where our possible conversation could go today. 100%. We react out of that trauma space so often and we don't even know it. Yeah. Yeah. The reactivity. Yeah. that, That emotional reactivity so often comes from that trauma base. I've realized from my own past trauma experience, going back and walking through with a counselor, going through some of that myself, how to learn that then and say, now I can recognize that not only in seeing it in myself and then realizing and stepping out of that pattern. So you don't run into that reactivity and create so much of that, what we deem drama in life, mm-hmm. you learn to see it and say, okay, first and foremost, how am I relating to my trauma and projecting that out? Do I mm-hmm. make that assumption in somebody and then kick into that reactive mode? You know, now I've learned not to step into that. 
And then, you know, as a result, you open your relationships, you open yourself to the potential. You also don't limit the possibility of that relationship by saying, but I made this expectation and this harsh judgment on it. Totally. Now I can accept that person for where their true battles are, where their true relationship to it is also, and then not create a lot of those blocks that become the drama. Mm-hmm. Or the story, yeah, the drama, yeah, the, yeah, it, the story we tell ourselves. That creative narrative, not only for your own experience, but how then do you project that back to others? Because so much of that then is where the real drama happens. You start to project that trauma out into the world and it starts bumping into everything like running through a forest with your eyes closed. You know, in this one circumstance, the individual, we had had a pre-talk and had a real good discussion. And I said right away, it's like, I get a sense that if I'm aware of what's going on here and just allow it to be and accept it, there's something deeper. I started doing a little investigation work and hadn't connected for a couple months with this individual. And they had dealt with some COVID issues where they got COVID, a lot of health issues. I said, more than likely, that's what's going on. Sure mm-hmm. enough, a day later, I get a message from the individual apologizing needlessly to me about I'm dealing with all of these recurring things and I am so sorry. I'm like, there's no need for sorriness in that. That's one of those things where then that trauma becomes another projection, mm-hmm. another kind of echo or ripple from that. Yeah. And it's so easy to kind of blame the other person and outsource, you know, yeah. like it's yeah. them, it's them, it's them. And not look internally like, why am I so triggered right now? Why am I so pissed off? Why am I so reactive? So true. I think that's a cool angle. Would you be opposed to kind of looking at that today? That sounds awesome. (laughs) I know that's kind of a little counter in some regards to what we threw out there, which I think we can bring some of that boundary setting, more of your genius and specialty being that somatic recognition and inner work. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. I love it. I love when it's like out of a real life situation, you know, I, I've said with that today and I, I kind of had my own traumatic inspired battle with it in some way. And I realized that that's some of that trauma coming back to say, here's an echo of in a lot of ways, you know, that need to control. I was listening to one of your conversations with one of your hosts and kind of a green light going on for this individual as I watched them kind of reach this unveiling in themselves where it's like, wait a minute, maybe I had a trauma I didn't realize. Mm -hmm. And that's my reflection on it. That's my assumption on it. As a coach so often, that can be a case where we meet a client. You know, I don't know. Let's let's look at it from your angle. You're a little more specific on your target audience. Mm -hmm. So from your experience, do you often get people who come to you with things outside of dealing with trauma and that empathic relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I do have some clients who were like, <laughs> if they listen to this, they're going to laugh. I don't have any <laughs> trauma. And I'm like, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. And then, you know, it's revealed because we all do every single one of us does that old story that then triggers something exactly like you were saying and wakes up mm-hmm. in those moments. And it's clear because not every single one of us would react, yeah. right? Like to the same situation, like every single person would react slash respond differently to every situation. So when we find ourselves in that reactivity and I love that you like caught yourself and I do that all the time. I have so many stories too about myself. (laughs) Human. 
That's the great thing about once you start to uncover some of these things, if you get past the other little prickly, somewhat, you know, we call prickly sticking points, they truly do empower you because you can start to become aware and see it, feel it, think it, process it, release it. That mantra we live on by here in our community of experiencing anything in life, you know, and when that point of reaction is that emotional reactivity, instead of being responsive to it, instead of, you know, relating to it instead of from it. Yeah. You start to see a whole different view unfold in front of you. You can say, wait, I catch myself and I'm not judging myself for it. I'm not doing all of these repetitive cycles of beating myself up. You know, it's do we go down that road again? even in our own conversation about it today. <laughs> yeah. And it's all the stuckness patterns. Like when you're just stuck in a pattern of behavior or thought, Yeah, like you were saying, you know, the judgment or behaviors like procrastination or sabotaging your own success or different things like that. That's when you know that there may be some trauma there that's driving that. So I'm looking at this as I'm prepping up this morning and totally focused on connecting with that direction we spoke of, of, you know, uncovering more of that embodied sense of trauma Mm -hmm. and connecting with that. You know, and there again, this is your area of genius, how you connect and how you relate to it from your experience really allows you to excel. As I'm prepping for that, I'm looking and saying, we've put a lot of awareness in that and that's fabulous. You know, that opens a lot of doors, but There's a part of me in the back that keeps saying, but what about when that trauma, like you mentioned, is repressed or uncovered? When it's being pushed back, how do we help bridge people to realize that? You know, so often we're relating to those more devastating, potentially devastating, more drastic senses of trauma, you know, looking at abuse and looking at Mm -hmm. things like that, that it's the more prevalent. I'm, I'm searching here a little bit. It, it, it tends to be a little bit more in the forefront. Yeah. So you're saying that the narrative like in the mainstream is trauma is this extreme. Yeah. It's thing the, that extremism. the extremism. The mm-hmm. extremism. There we go. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that to me. Maureen. <laughs> yeah. It's the extremism. And I'm not uh-huh. downplaying or diminishing that because that is right there in the forefront. But so often, and I know, especially with my clients, as I've started to learn and grow more with uncovering and resolving my own trauma relationships, with going through my own healing process of my past traumas, it's opened a lot of doors to me then to say, now I realize and understand when clients come to me, how to start foreseeing some of these traumas and saying, aha, you know, that's the hot button point that says, this is a potential trigger for that. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much just being able to recognize the specific trauma, but some of those pathways that lead up to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so easy to focus on the behavior piece, like, well, just set your alarm or just like, just do X, Y, Z. And I, I've always been fascinated with like, how do we actually like shift? How do we actually transform a behavior specifically that's like not working or like manifest things? I mean, in the way, but also like if I really want a successful career, like how do I make that happen? And when I feel stuck in it, like it's not happening, it's not being created, like what's going on there and what you're speaking to, which I so agree is like, it's not going to work. Maybe it'll work for a week to set an alarm or these little shifts. But the deeper thing here is trauma 
that is very seemingly not trauma, right? Like it's like, well, you know, it could be from when you were a baby and it could even be from before you were born Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the generations. And that affects your life now and gets you stuck because I really believe that we inherently strive towards goodness. Like every part of us wants goodness. We want to create it. We want to be it. We want to live it. But then something comes in that kind of blocks that. And it's not us necessarily. Like it's not intentional. It's very subconscious. Those little tiny friction points that so many of us can experience. I like to frame it in that way, because once we start to kind of frame it in, we all do it. Then we start to create our own ripples of trauma in some ways. Some people do. Some people don't. Very frequently, there's a vast majority of us that do. (laughs) Looking at it from that angle and backing up a step, so often we associate that instance of trauma taking root either in our past occurrence or either in that frame of challenging environments. So often I think we miss the boat to talk about when those traumas kind of rear up out of what are seemingly and normally described as a happy, stable, loving childhood. Totally. Those inner child injuries and woundings can happen from some of the most seemingly unlikely sources. Yeah, yeah, you know? so, and so true. We think we've went down this path. Well, everything was great by most circumstances. So, you know, we run into that place where we put into that pigeonhole. I'm in somewhat of a denial about it. As you mentioned, the clients that will step forward, there are those instances where we see someone come forward and say, I don't have that, Mm -hmm. you know, which in and of itself is kind of a natural response to any trauma. Would you not agree? Yeah, it totally is. And, you know, I think there's also like some, I was talking about this with a friend last night, the cultural aspects to it too, um, because I'm not from the U.S. originally. And I think here there's like an over positivity. Like it's almost like toxic positivity. <laughs> hey, even in the coaching world. Very charged in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Even in my opinion, even in the coaching world, like it's like be positive, smile, you know, which I love that. I, I do love yeah. smiling and laughing and all of that. And, you know, that's part of life. But I think if your life is just that, you're not really living, you're not really alive. You're just denying parts of yourself and you cannot be fully alive when you deny parts of yourself because we need to be whole. We need to strive to our wholeness. That very notion of denial, you know, there is where that line's overstepped because you start to pad against the fact that we do as human beings so often experience those things that, you know, can trigger us in that direction. And there again, it's that triggering that pushes us one direction or the other. When we start to cover it up and say, I'm just going to neglect feeling this. There's a fine line there to me. Some of that you can do and it's productive. Is it being effective? You're just like we said, back into that denial. I'd like to look at some of those ways you might feel You know, as somebody who focuses on trauma, that those actual symptoms, you know, symptoms for lack of better word at the moment for me, start to surface in our behaviors. Some of those little things where somebody might be triggered and reacting in that way. And when that trauma resurfaces, becomes another behavior. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great point. All the numbing things. All the myriad of numbing things like, you know, scrolling endlessly or overthinking or, you know, I mean, obviously like drinking, gambling, that type of stuff. But it's also things that we do every day, like little numbing things where sometimes you're like, oh, my gosh, what was I just doing? Like, I forgot, you know, in the last half an hour, I, I, I completely dissociated. Also, of course, there's like very intense reactivity, rage. Um, anger, I think is great. I think we should love it and, and respect it. But when it comes to rage and kind of taking it out on other people are those times when you look back and you're like, that was a little disproportionate, like how I felt and how I reacted to the situation didn't match the situation really. Um, so what's going on there. And then, yeah, all the, the numbing things. I mean, a lot of my clients are very good at it and I think all humans are, and I think there's a place for it. Like you said, there definitely is. We can't just constantly be facing trauma or like constantly dealing with pain. Yeah. Sometimes we numb, sometimes we have fun because it's fun. And sometimes we numb and they're both good. But I always ask like, is it serving you? Whatever you're doing, you know, is the behavior serving you? Are you in balance now? Like, are you drinking for fun? Like, are you drinking a glass of wine a day or are you drinking to like not feel? I know this is a big one you mentioned and talk a lot in several of the conversations I've witnessed of yours. Control being a big one. Mm-hmm. And that that's another one where it's a lot of fine, seemingly gray area. You know, what is balanced awareness of something and being responsive to it versus that need to kind of domineer and overtake things. That in and of itself is a, a fine, nuanced gray line that as human beings, we all, you know, we all I caught myself. That's a generational pattern. <laughs> Frequently can be experienced by many of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I love that you also said gray area because I just wrote a post about this. I'm going to share it soon, but um, how trauma is like, so like we want black and white, like we just want the answer (laughs) and we just want, like, we don't want to think about the gray area and like, you know, nothing is almost nothing. A lot of things are not inherently bad. It's just, how are you doing it? What are, what is it serving you? Like, you know, how much are you doing it? So when we are reactive from trauma, it's like, I want black and white. Yes or no. This person's good. This person's bad, you know? And I catch myself doing that too. So yeah, control is a huge one because trauma is all about losing control, losing safety, losing, Mm. feeling helpless, feeling overwhelmed and helpless in a situation. So then we kind of really crave that sense of control and we can take it out and in some unhealthy ways, whether it's controlling other people or controlling ourselves through food, through exercise and really struggling to let go. Like you were saying, like people didn't book or didn't show up. Okay. Like, okay. There must have been a deeper reason I just let go. That's that sense of flow <laughs> does not show up when we are reactive, right? No, like that. no. And it often can bump up against that. Now, I'm not saying that I'm completely exonerated of it. You know, there are little voices back there sometimes that, that triggers a little ripple back there. And I love that you bump that back to that notion, you know, intuitively spoke to me of control that gray area 
is one of the most frequent things that we bump into as a result of that trigger. Reaching to find that black and white when so much of our experience in life bumps into all of these complexity. And it's only as complex as we make it. It's just that brilliance of life being so guided by circumstance and happenstance of the wonderful variables we all bring because that's one of the things we all do bring is our own variable to that equation. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you, you just can't control life. Life just like happens and you can choose to respond or you can react. Right. Yeah. And like yeah. it didn't go exactly as I wanted. Yeah. And we all do it. Like every single one of us, there's no, no one so enlightened, maybe a cartole. I don't know. Um, Byron Katie and Eckhart Tolle. But other than them, I think we all do it. And it's really about, oh, I just did that. Okay. You know, yeah. <laughs> like just yeah. that awareness. That to me bumps me into, you know, that area then of lashing out, being that result of that trauma response, of that need to control. And there again, we're looking at gray, you know, where is that shade of how do you start to form an awareness of how and when as an individual, you yourself might be lashing out. We look at that from so often the angle of just aggression, anger, that more kind of boisterous way Mm -hmm. of showing it where we don't quite recognize some of those micro instances of it some of that more kind of what we might deem passive aggressive Mm -hmm. that's the spectrum of my family for sure kind of tiptoeing back into somewhat of a potentially jaded and overused cliche that passive aggressive where you know you're not being so outward about it but it's there yeah yeah that's definitely a big part of my family was like that, the passive aggressive. <laughs> and it's like just noticing your nervous system as you do that. Like mm. you're not present. You're not in the moment. You're not curious. You're just shut down or over stimulated. Right. Like, yeah. and so, yeah, not fun. It's not fun to live in that state for sure. And I think the more healing we do, the less we live there. <laughs> the more we're just curious and open and not judgmental what's the key to a happy and fulfilling life i think it's the fear of showing up in our purity and our truth we fear the light that's what i feel like this whole journey has brought me to oftentimes the things that we think will make us happy will not bring us safety and security at the end of the day we are a sovereign energetic being who has all the tools already on the inside it is within your fingertips you can create the life that you want and the only person that is stopping you from creating that life is you our greatest transformation happens from deep within we're all on the journey to discover the light inside that beacon which guides us to live our truest most authentic self visit us at www.the lightinside.us to find out more. Those patterns, whether they're a learned projected pattern from our firsthand experience with family, whether, you know, as you so frequently speak of, more of that kind of generational DNA ingrained past history, back generations. You know, you, you've spoken often about having 
some reflected behaviors from your grandmother Mm -hmm. that have surfaced as trauma for you. Yes. I have similar experiences, you know, throughout my family, throughout dealing with my own very real trauma responsive anger that has been something I've had to really wrestle with. Now that I look at it, you know, did I really ever wrestle with it? Creating that notion that I was ever wrestling with it just kind of perpetuated the trauma. You start to exasperate it. You start to overinflate it can become a way you just continue to fuel that source. It's one way I related to it. But, you know, that was something passed back. Literally, this reframe that through the family history, that's just a family trait. Mm hmm kind of passed off, poo-pooed down, downplayed, diminished, marginalized it. Well, it's just a part of your family lineage. It's part of who you are, your blood. That's a family trait. It's like, you know, okay, that's till you call bullshit on that. Totally. And finding that justification in it from my perspective, my experience, do you allow yourself that space to kind of justify your ineffective actions? Let's call it ineffective. That's not to diminish it. That's just saying it didn't serve who and what I could be in service of this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I love how you put that. And it's like so easy to say, well, this is just how we are. Yeah. This is just how it is. And for many years, like that's kind of how I saw things, you know, this is just how it is. Um, but yeah, from my grandma, I mean, Ah, there's so much <laughs> there in her childhood <laughs> that I feel like mm. I experience almost like her reactivity to things in yes. my own body. And the only way that I've been able to access it is through my body because it's so irrational, you know, like I, yeah. it's not a memory. It's not like, there's no explanation to it. Um, it's observing them, but it also, again, gets passed down the DNA, mm. which is so crazy. Let's, but Let's look at that observing them comment, you know, relay with us a little bit about your experience with your grandmother. What role did she play in your upbringing? Well, pretty damn huge. Like she, she kind of pretty much raised me with my mom. That being said though, I think, um, I really think she would have still really affected who I am, even if she wasn't physically present, but of course, like observing her words, observing her behavior and then her, So it's like her teaching me certain things, but also her just being, you know, she's being and I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, this is how, you know, like, it's so funny. She, so she has moved to San Diego as well. And she doesn't speak like she literally knows how to say thank you. That's all the English Mm -hmm. she knows. And yet she knows the price of every single vegetable and fruit. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. And she literally like, she went to the store with me and she's like, Oh oh my gosh, you could have saved a dollar on this and on this and on this. Right. So that definitely, definitely got passed down to me. Yeah. Huh? Now see there, there's an interesting area we can look at where black and white shades of gray can seem like I'm, you know, being mindful of taking care of us. I'm being mindful of, you know, budgeting out our expenses. But then to a child mind, that pattern very often subconsciously signals insecurity. I'm not safe. You're not safe, you know, and that's the part where I think so often that disconnect happens and we step into that area where that bit of denial happens where some of that regression happens, where that veil starts to 
go over in place and that shadow side steps back there till yeah. it comes screaming out, begging to be heard. <laughs> yes, it does. And that's my relationship with money now that I am really working yeah. on. Yeah. yeah. And it, like you said, like there's like the benefit of it, even that I could learn from her because she was like telling my mom, you didn't teach her anything. And, you know, you didn't teach her how to no. budget, whatever. And, you know, there's that part of like, oh, well, there's things you can learn, beautiful things yeah. from both your parents and all your ancestors. But then there's the places where, first of all, does it fit with my current reality? Yes. And like you said, I'm not safe. That's it's huge. It's that's the message that my little brain got. We're never safe. There's never enough money. Like be obsessed about it. Think about it all night. Wake up with anxiety about it. Right. And otherwise you will never be safe, but it's like a never ending cycle. So, yeah, <laughs> here's, here's to me a converse that shines a light on a gray area. So often individuals experience life from that frame of reference where there are very real challenges, where there are those very real projections from others that say money is to be kind of lorded over and money is to kind of be shielded and guarded. The other side of that coin, let's look at the other side of that coin. When you grow up in an environment where not necessarily money is abundant and fluid, but you're in that kind of middle zone. Your family makes what's by most standards, a safe, reliable mm -hmm. income can create some of those tripping points too, because you don't necessarily have that light shining on one or other end of the spectrum. Money's not a lack. Money's not an abundance. You're just kind of in between. And so you get this little bit of false sense of security we never had to be challenged. Yeah. Can create yeah. different money perspectives that I feel so often are never spoke to because we're either spoken to one end of the spectrum when you are lacking or feel that sense of lack or taught that sense of lack and pushing forward full steam to get to the other end where you feel completely safe and sometimes overcompensate. That overcompensation can often become a trauma and struggle. Yeah. You know, I think what you're speaking to that I'm really passionate about is how to grow as a person yeah. in general and how I used to see it in the beginning of like my self-development journey is pushing, 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 yeah. like just going hard, you know, um, and learning about the nervous system and how the nervous system works has been so illuminating for me because what I learned is if you push too hard, you're going to shut down. Mm. That's what happens in our body. Our nervous system will shut down. If you don't push enough, you don't grow. Like nothing shifts. It's, you just stay as you are. So it's like finding again, that like middle ground of where you feel slightly pushed ever so slightly, but you're not shutting down. And yeah. what's so cool with somatic work is that that is very felt like that is very clear. So when I work somatically with people and I'll I would start to see them going away, like fading, you know, they're, they're kind of not there anymore or they're yawning a lot or different things like that. Um, and I'll ask them like, are you still here? Um, and they're not there anymore. That's where we've pushed too hard. Yeah. And so we still work, like it's still work and it's still challenging in that middle zone, but there's no shutdown. We're able to stay with like 
all the sensations that our past memories bring up, which is a lot, constriction and tension and heaviness and tightness and all these things, but we don't shut down. We're still present with it. And that's exactly with triggers, right? Like when there's a trigger and we can stay with the trigger, we're not running away. We're not thinking away. We're just like feeling it. Mm -hmm. It's happening. I'm triggered. There's no story. Like the story doesn't matter or we can acknowledge it, but like the story doesn't matter. What matters is all the stuff that I'm like sensing in my body right now. And if I can stay with it, I won't outsource my safety to someone else or, you know, source my, my self-worth or my safety from other people because I don't want to face myself. So I can know how to face myself and I can stay with it. Let's look at that. That's bringing this idea right into to my focus now. That notion of those triggers, that somatic body sensing experience. Yeah. How yeah. can we start to recognize some of those things for what they are when we're going through this? Well, mind-wise, again, it's that overreaction where we look yeah. back and we're like, wow, I was totally overreacting and really starting to like get to know ourselves and how we normally respond to things. Um, I can give an example yesterday. It was so funny. And I like in the moment, I was like, I know that I am overreacting, but here I am, you know, here it goes. I have a group program and a WhatsApp group and I shared something and then it said, whatever name left the group on the group chat. And I was like, yeah. What did I do? What happened? You know? <laughs> and, and, you know, a big one is just knowing your things, like your trigger yes. points, yes. just learning your things. I know mine belonging, belonging, being like feeling like I'm mm-hmm. loved, accepted, like all like the opposite of rejection, whatever yes. is the opposite yes. of rejection. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is huge. And it, just comes up in many, many forms. Oh yeah. no, my, my kitty is waking up. So hopefully she will cry in three, two, one, but then my partner will open the door for her. <laughs> You'll hear kitty crying. What can we do? That, um, that sense of belonging. There's the kitty. Hello, kitty. <laughs> I told him like, be on the ready. Cause she will start crying. And yep. She's like I'm done with my nap. I want to leave the room now. And that's a great illustration to me. You call that in rather than looking at the gray areas that create the friction. We look at that so often that trauma voice is like that little kitty. It's calling out for some attention, you know, and until you become aware of it, the kitty still keeps back there crying out. Oh, that's so (laughs) good. Rather than find a way for that kitty to become friction, we just acknowledge the kitty and say, I hear you and I see you. What can we learn from you? (laughs) We can learn not to lock the door. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's so good. And you know what else? Like, it's when we don't tend to it, it's like this thing in the background that is kind of driving up the reactivity of our yes. nervous system in general. So even if, you know, even if like, if, if like a little other thing happens and I, I might have to open the door for her in a moment, <laughs> any other little thing that happens in the day after we've had the trigger that we haven't tended to, it's an explosion. Like it becomes, 
I'll be right back. <laughs> As the kitty gets louder and louder. Thank you, kitty, for our lesson today. <laughs> and it's such a great example. Such a great example. <laughs> Until yep. you answer the call, it's going to come back. <laughs> totally. And answer the call with compassion. Like right. if, if you are mean to her, like if I yell at her, like be quiet. It's like yelling at a little kid, like be quiet. You're, you're annoying. It's right. Get five times louder. Yeah. That's going to get five times louder. Totally. <laughs> I love this example, but you know, it's beautiful. Like I really like sharing that with my clients of, yeah paying attention to their nervous system throughout the day, because once we get to 10 of reactivity, it is so hard to come down. But if we're getting to like a two, like, for example, when I saw that text, okay, I was like, I know, I know I'm telling myself a story in my head, like, but I'm doing it and I can't get out of it. This is happening now, right? I can't just be like, okay, stop, because it's in my body and I feel this, I feel my breath gets more shallow. It's in my body. It comes from the body to the mind. So just acknowledging it and being like, okay, every time I feel that sense of a little bit extra tension in my body throughout that day, I'm just like, it's that thing running in the background. I know it's happening until she texted me and she's like, what group? What? I left the group. What? (laughs) (laughs) I definitely didn't mean to leave the group. And then I just was cracking up and I was like, yeah. (laughs) So often that 10 on that reactivity, it gets labeled drama. We're constantly in that active state of heightened arousal Mm -hmm. of being almost projected in hyper aware And bringing to light things that aren't necessarily as bad as we like to make them seem. That's not, again, to diminish things when they are genuinely a threat or a challenge. And that doesn't feel so reactive. It doesn't feel like rumination, right? Like when we have like a real threat, it's like there's a threat. I respond. It's done. And that's exactly like Peter Levine, the founder of somatic experiencing, he observed animals and he's like, how come animals don't have PTSD? Like they don't, something happens. They're like, okay, threat. I respond. (laughs) Done. We're done. Yeah. But for us, for humans, we freeze. Mm. And when we freeze and so do animals, by the way, but they have mechanisms in their body. It's, it's like completely body-based to kind of shake off literally actually that freeze, but we don't do that. We're not taught that we're taught like you freeze, you constrict, and then you stay that way. And that's where chronic illness comes from. Like so much physical pain that I see in people and all these behaviors that you're describing. And it's not proportional. It's like when there's a real threat, and we fight or flee, we release that energy. We release it and we may be upset a little bit, like it's going to affect us, but we just, we do something about it and it's done. But when there's a threat that is like so overwhelming that we feel like we can't do anything, we get into the freeze and that's where the reactivity starts to happen. And there again, we lean back toward the kitty cat, you know, it's you put her out the door. She's back there crying for, you know, whatever her Needs. point is. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you kind of put her out in the zone. Five minutes from now, you're going to go out there and odds are the kitty cat's curled up. She's forgot about it. But as human beings, 
We spend days, months, weeks, often years ruminating, going through that cycle of reactivating it, pushing that level to 10, 12, wherever, rather than falling back into that. Yeah. And I learned from her too. And how she kind of, I've seen her shake after things have happened, you know, to (laughs) shake it off. (laughs) Yeah. To release it. It's, you know, people think, you know, we're often taught like it's all in your mind and and release the thought and think positively, but it's actually not all in our minds. (laughs) It's in the nervous system. It starts to happen in the nervous system. And then the story comes out of that. So we have to tend to our bodies and to our to that energy that stays constricted in a really like gentle way to feel it mm. and start to release it. And it's so cool. I mean, it's so freeing when we do that. Yeah. We don't listen so often to those more innate signals. One of the gray areas is that whole overthinking contrasted with rumination, you know, it's very much driven by the number of actual thoughts we have when you're ruminating. But then the biggest overriding factor is the quality of that thought. You know, you're going back and thinking all of these things that are poking that friction point. Yeah. Rather than finding that reasoning that says, but this is a, I risk saying more logical approach to it. You know, you start to form a different awareness is where I go with it. You start to see it in a new light, bringing in my light cliche, but that's why it to me becomes so relevant to those that truly connect is it's readily there. You know, you're pushing back to that same kind of response that the cat has. You shake off some of those things that are becoming that dust, that weight, those things that hold you down. Yeah, something I love to do that helps me so much when I find myself spinning, (laughs) spinning in my head is just to say I'm in my trauma response and then I cut it. I just cut it and and I notice how I'm in my head, but I don't feel the rest of my body in those times at all. I don't feel my chest, my stuff. Like I don't feel any sensations because I'm just in my head. And that's what trauma is like. It's like a cutoff. It's going into thinking so that you can survive so that you can figure out, well, what do I need to do? How do I, why is this happening? And like all, all the, these <laughs> thoughts that are totally in service. If there's a real threat, like totally, yes. because it's like, Oh, there's a line up there. I need to go to the left so that I don't meet up with him today. Um, that's great. But when there isn't a real threat and it's a perceived threat to our system, we just start spinning That really helps me to just say I'm in my trauma response. And then it's like a lot of compassion and a break from that, from that cycle that is so painful and, and yeah, corrosive. Being attuned and aware of those body responses, those physical reactions is often one of our greatest assets when properly constructively aligned. It's a gray area where some of those ways I even voice it can become a trigger can signal some of my own relationship to it, but it just amazes me looking at some of those things. Noticing those patterns allows us to open up and see ourselves, allows us as coaches to recognize them in others. These little patterns of habit, these little responses, you know, nervous tics. That's one thing that's kind of come to mind, fascinating watching somebody shifting. And we see that a lot when somebody's wrestling with something, they're starting to kick into that rumination mode and you see these shifts. Yeah. One of the interesting patterns I've tried to become more aware of, because to me, it's, it's fascinating is the simple lip smack. 
when someone is speaking. I notice these things and not from a judgmental level, but just becoming aware and discerning that these things happen. And if you're observing, sometimes there's a meaning behind that. What, what so, do you see as the meaning for the I did a little back? digging on this. This is why mm-hmm. I brought it prominent, because it's something I'm starting to shift a little more awareness on it, because there's like little triggers that sometimes even you don't recognize yourself doing. I know I do some certain things. I'm not going to point them all out right now in the moment and go down that thing. But you start to realize, hey, this is what I'm doing. This. So if you're helping guide others to discovering those things without pointing it out in a way that's judgmental, how do you kind of bridge and say, hey, but recognize when you're doing this because that's when you're kicking it up. So looking at lip smacking, backing that back up. I did some research on this, looking at there's got to be a relevant tie there. So linking that back in our human evolution from what we presume to be chimpanzees, delving into, you know, some gray area there in and of itself, looking at that possible relationship, there has to be some DNA connection to that. Then if we did, in fact, evolve from chimpanzees, apes, whatever we want to deem that data suggests that this is an oral signal observed in chimpanzees as an example of a communicative behavior facilitating cooperative behavior between chimpanzees Hmm. as they're grooming each other. You know, they're doing a lot of this lip smacking back and forth. It signals that things are safe. It signals a normal reaction. When things become unsafe, when you watch chimps, their clicking behavior becomes accelerated. It goes to that Mm -hmm. 10 of reactivity. And it's fast for everything like fast. So if you equate that back as human beings, when there's lip smacking in our human speech, it could potentially be reflective of that inner child feeling those trauma responses and then responding back subconsciously. Most of the time, we don't think about that. We don't think about why we're making that clicking noise or why that's happening unless you become hyper aware of it and then you're over-focused on it. That's not to say it's something you should be judgmental of and pick apart, you know, not create another source of trauma from. But as individuals, we often miss that as the simple indicator. It might be that that's another way we might be reflecting that trauma. Yeah. And people really, we, we actually regulate our nervous system by looking at others too. Like we're always like searching for cues of safety and danger in facial features, even with the masks, you can still see when someone's smiling, (laughs) I can still see. And it's really like cues, you know, Um, one thing that I notice in my clients is when they swallow, when we're talking about emotions or like, it's like, I don't want to show the sadness or so I swallow. You swallow it back. mm -hmm. I know this about myself in my own sense of self-awareness and self-confidence. This is how I relate to it. I'm not an overly forward projecting eye connector a lot of times, which can also signal some of the traumas that might be shielding. You know, there's a duality there. Mm -hmm. But I do know as whatever result of sense of identity I've developed, I have that sense of confidence that I'm not constantly looking to connect with others can become a limitation in some regards, but also is something I have to be kind of aware of when I am connecting with others. Yeah. I actually uh, feel intimidated by like straight up eye contact. Yeah. And I've even done things with my therapist where she'll be like, okay, you're going away when I'm like, I can see you going away. So she will just look away and we'll do the session like that. 
like she <laughs> she look off to the side and all a lot of these things come from attachment trauma so like yes. attachment just like with parents and um how we were bonding and also our parents ability to like handle their emotions i know my mom it's not very good at that <laughs> with <laughs> sadness, for example. And so it's like very subconscious, but I am sure that when she would see me sad and she's even told me when you were little, but it's like, even when you were a baby, this all registers in our bodies. Um, she, she would tell me that when she would see me sad, she would just want to do anything to make it go away rather than be like, Oh, you're sad. Like it's okay. And Therefore, it's really hard for me to express sadness in front of other people. Like it feels dangerous in my body. Mm -hmm. Like if I tune into my body, I'm sad. I'll just divert, divert to something else. You know, let's just lie. Let's talk about something else. And I feel that sense of danger, like in my body. And I also feel that it's very uh, not freeing. You know, it's like the opposite of freedom. Cause like, if I'm sad, I want to express that. And I, want to show that to other people. So that's exactly the moment where I think, you know, you, you realize like your trigger is something that you want to work on to have a sense of more freedom, more aliveness and being more of yourself with others and, and by yourself. Have you heard of Amphi? Through the medium of live video, Amphi plans to change the world. As an online platform for live recreational learning, Amphi is the largest marketplace for live classes. Their mission is connecting and enriching humanity through knowledge. With over 60 categories of live classes with experts around the world, their program is the future of personal growth guaranteeing you stay on track for lifelong personal learning and growth. Whether you are sharpening your Japanese, learning to draw, or improving your chess skills, Amphi is the largest marketplace for live classes, leading the way to a brighter us. If you place value and importance on lifelong personal learning, visit www.amphi.com to find your class, book your seat, and go live today. That sense of belonging and acceptance to me is, you know, such a crucial thing that keeps coming to the forefront. I'm going to put this intention out into the atmosphere. That's an area I would love to invite somebody in and have a really in-depth conversation. You know, what are some of the inner workings of that? Diane Poole Heller. <laughs> right on. I'm going to look that one up. Thank you very much. I'm grateful she, for that suggestion. Yeah, she does work on <laughs> attachment, like attachment styles, attachment yes. trauma. It's so fascinating. But yeah, it's, do you know, have you heard of Gabor Mate? Yes, actually, that was a, a reference point I was going to throw in at some point that looking at that big quote that trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you. Yeah. You know, kind of was my connecting point with Gabor Mate. Yeah. And he also talks about and, and yeah, and that quote really shows what you were saying in the beginning, which is like, it doesn't matter what happened. It could have been like something where you're like, oh, that's not a big deal, but yeah. it is for that person because of what's happening internally. But the other thing that he talks about and so many like teachers talk about is this constant tension that we have between authenticity and belonging like being ourselves fully and 
being approved of. And it's like a constant, again, gray area where it's like, how can I I need both? Like we all need both as humans. And it's so funny because like some of my clients are like, oh, I could just do everything by myself. And I'm like, that's your trauma talking (laughs) Uh, (laughs) because we can't, we need people. We like absolutely need people we are communal beings, but we also need to know how to be ourselves with people and to find that middle ground. It's so tricky mm-hmm. of like, where do I lose myself in relationships and where am I an asshole? <laughs> you know, like I just, <laughs> I don't care about anyone and I'm right. So how like, did you pick out one of my big trauma trigger sources, you know, because I can't slip across that gray and come across as that asshole sometimes and very much be, I'm going to own it, be that asshole sometimes. And I have to recognize and acknowledge it and say, put your finger on it, own it, redirect it. So much of what one experiences of trauma is felt you know, we, we feel it, we sense it, yet it's unknown. Yeah. You know, it's, it seems foreign to us. It seems unfamiliar, but we get that kind of friction prickly sensation mm-hmm. of it. Totally. Yeah. And in that moment when you're being an asshole, maybe you're like, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, it's not, it's not intentional, <laughs> right? It's like, it, it can't be like, a very I feel like I response. Have to. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I have to, like, this is what I'm supposed to do. It's the same with like people pleasing and not having boundaries. It's like, I feel like I have to, otherwise I'm in danger. And that's really like, that's, it's it's so amazing when you actually tap into that sense of danger. And I wonder if you could maybe one day do that as you're being an (laughs) asshole, like underneath that is that sense of danger of like, if I don't do this, something bad's going to happen, you know? So that's where a lot of my self-compassion comes from when I am being an asshole. Self-compassion is the key. How do you remove the judgment of it, remove the projection towards others of it, become aware of it and say, now I move into discernment. There's a way to direct without being an asshole. There is a way to be assertive without being an asshole and stepping on yourself or anyone else. And if you're stepping on someone else, you're going to step on yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to step over yourself to get to anyone else. That discernment of being confident versus being whatever state you might put into opposition with that, that fine gray line. Yeah, I think that's a huge practice all the time. I used to have very little self-compassion, so I'm pretty like proud of where I've reached. (laughs) But one thing that really helps me is knowing that our nervous system state, the state of our nervous system really determines our psychology. And so like, if I walk into a room, if I walk into the kitchen and the kitchen looks like crap and I'm already anxious, like I've had an anxious day, I'm anxious. I will probably yell at my partner and just be like, what did you do here? This sucks. Like what's going on? Like clean up the kitchen, just be mean. If I walk (laughs) in there and I'm shut down, I already feel shut down internally. And I see that, oh my God, he's never going to clean this kitchen. It's always going to look like this. Oh, that's going to be my story. If I walk in there and I'm like, pretty good. I've had a great day. I feel open, curious, connected. I'll be like, hey, 
the kitchen looks great and I'll, you know, make a joke out of it. That's my <laughs> way lately. It looks like you did some giant experiment and I don't know if I want to taste it, but yeah, then he'll laugh and be like, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'm going to clean it up. <laughs> sorry. I left it this way. Right. So it's like, yes. Yes. that really helps me have so much self-compassion because I don't go into the mind. I'm just like, oh, I, I get where the monster just came out of. Yes. I'm already triggered. Like my, my system is already in this fight or flight anxious state. So, of course, I'm going to be an asshole in this moment. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, you know, you mentioned that little monster and connecting that somewhat with the emotional state of reactivity. For me, you know, I look at that and it kind of registers or projects outward surfaces as what we very often label as childish behavior or childish mm. outbursts. Mm -hmm. I want to reel in and look at that. You know, when we are younger, so often we can witness children doing it where you're throwing kind of that tantrum, you're acting out, exhibiting these things that are in response to the world around you. That to me is one of the biggest ways to realize if you might be in a little bit of denial or if you might be kind of disconnected from those traumas to say, wait a minute, there's something here. Is this a childish behavior? Because that child, that inner wounded child is stepping forward and saying, we're still kind of stuck back in that phase. Totally. And the way I relate to it is by going back and reliving it, reacting it, replaying that and becoming that again. Yeah, totally. And, you know, sometimes we don't even have the specific memory that's connected to the present moment. Cause like in that moment, we're five or six, right. And we're living, we're reacting to the past, but in the present moment, because our, our present self probably wouldn't do that. Yeah. So it's like reacting to the past. And so I have so much compassion for that child, but also like those emotions are messengers. So if I'm like super angry, well, I probably haven't set boundaries. I'm probably not getting my needs met. Like something's going on. So I can look at that. I can deal with my anger instead of taking it out on other people and process that a little bit and really sit with what's going on for me. Why am I so angry? And then in connections with others, like communicate that from a very calm nervous system rather than reactive. So like I, I've been learning to deal with my reactivity and I have plenty of it um, on my own. And yeah. And like also recognize like something real is going on. Like yes. my needs are not being met. Like it's not just <laughs> oh trauma, get over it. Yeah. Like, that's, that's not on. to push back into that area of shame that so often becomes its own source of trauma becomes its own stuck point its own friction of mm -hmm. then you know either yourself shaming it or engaging in and being caught in you know shaming cycles from others yeah that's a yeah. fine line everything so often we run into that fine line where it's an either not even an either or a yes and yes and of doors and keeps mm -hmm. the gate open to just discover as soon as we start to look at that either or we start to close that door on whatever that potential is yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love the yes. And, and it, it's like a much harder way to live. I feel yeah. 
<laughs> it really is. It's more complicated. It's like our brain just wants the black and white, but it, we, we can make it more hard <laughs> or we can just lovingly accept it with compassion and say, yeah, but there's, there's a lot of gray and that's just the fact of life. Yeah. It's just a potential in life. It might not even be the fact. Yeah. And I love that you brought in the shame too, because shame is like really that shutdown, collapse, hopelessness, you know, and it mm. prevents us from looking at things and from really being with things. So, yeah. and it's a huge part of trauma. Like every trauma comes with shame because as soon as you remove that shame and you start talking about things and you're like, oh, this is what I did. And this is how I feel. It's like trauma just goes down. Like it just kind of gets smaller. So often that shame gets so embroiled, we start to project it outward. Mm -hmm. We start, you know, to move into that asshole phase <laughs> and find ways to either find that shame in others or project that shame onto others. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's one to sit with. How do you start to realize that? If you're taking ownership and authorship of your life, if you're becoming more responsible for who and what you are moving out of that victim mode. Mm. That was one of the best questions of my whole life. <laughs> when I was like 20, I asked myself, what do I enjoy about being a victim? <laughs> that was, it was a hard one. And That's it was, grabbing the bull by the horns now. Yes. It was just, it what just do came. I enjoy about this crap? <laughs> well, that's what humans do. You know, if yeah. we keep doing the same thing, we're yeah. getting a benefit. So I was like, what's the benefit? What's the benefit that I'm, that I keep getting? Cause I keep doing it. And it was love and attention from everyone. So it's like, Oh, that's what I need that I'm not getting. And, um, I think I still will continue to sit with that one, mm. but whenever we have a pattern that just keeps repeating, it's really asking, what do I enjoy about procrastination? What's the need that I'm getting? You yeah. know, what am I getting yeah. here? Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's a gray again, you know, procrastination, the bubble come up. Let's look at it. <laughs> when do you cross that line between true procrastination, putting things off and listening to that somatic experience that says there's a need that genuinely isn't being met, whether that's a need for rest, whether that's a need for purpose, whether that's, you know, a need for validation in what you're doing. Whether sometimes that's just a need to not do a God darn thing mm -hmm. is a very real need that so often we push back based on patterning, based on projection programming, based on our own sense of shaming, which very often is a trauma response. I think it's always a need, honestly, now that you put it that way. I think it's always a need. Like maybe, yeah, maybe it's like as simple as just resting or like I cannot keep going and doing, doing, doing. But maybe it's like even, you know, deeper than that. Like there's yeah. some need yeah. that this five-year-old child didn't get. So I'm going to procrastinate, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I've been unraveling that one. Very frequently pivotal point. I like to frame it that way. Pivotal point because it is something that teeters back and forth based on where you squarely root what that core value is to you is significantly meaningful me in this moment often becomes that defining character. 
And so often we guilt and shame that down and say, but this pattern says this, but this trauma says this, but this outside voice says this. And then you start to set that drama of struggle between what you intuitively know to be right in the moment, what's projected to be the expectation in the moment or in the future. And it just becomes this needless wrestle that usually takes you nowhere and creates, ironically, 20 times the gap in your ability to react or act or assertively take any kind of action out of. You spent more time going through the battle, creating a sense of failure, creating a sense of challenge. That's how I'm going to step into this today, because to me, that's a big one. I can see becoming limitation in a lot of ways and just propped up with common projected pattern of how we view it. Yeah. I think life is meant to be with more ease. (laughs) (laughs) And yet we can stigmatize that. It's so often, it's so often become stigmatized to find ease, to find comfort. I was curious today, and this is one that constantly pulls into my awareness. I'm a researcher. There's something inherently that has developed in me, and I don't even want to question it beyond that because I've found a lot of ways to make service of it that says, look at the meaning of things. I went back and looked at this notion of comfort and how so often we can each find our way to pick that apart find ways to either make it work for us or against us. What's the very root of comfort? You know, I'm like, do we actually hold on to our core intended meaning with it? We go back to look at comfort at its root and it's rooted in Latin, guided by the concept of strength, of finding enrichment, of knowing is what the true source of comfort was intended to mean. Yet throughout our history as human beings, we found a way to unravel that and weighed it down with negativity, weighed it down with impossibility rather than its core intention of signaling strength, knowing, and possibility. We look at comfort as something so often to be avoided at all costs, yet you can choose to become comfortable with nearly anything. We we witness people who are comfortable in some senses in regard in very negative circumstances. But then we take Viktor Frankl, who took a same sense of urgency in very seemingly dire circumstances and was able to find comfort in that. There's a lot of disparity there. All I intend to say, take the time to ascertain how you create meaning of that comfort and how do you effectively apply that to be in service of yourself and others. Yeah, you know, to me, when I hear you say that, it comes back to, again, being in a place of receptivity. That's comfort to me, because if I'm not receptive, I can't really move forward. Like if I'm uncomfortable, if I'm unsafe, if I'm in that frantic state or that shutdown state, there's not growth. But we think that you have to be uncomfortable to grow. But I actually disagree with that. I think we have to learn through our bodies to be comfortable with discomfort, with the discomfort of the constriction, with the discomfort of tightness in our body. And our mind will automatically say danger because that's where the constriction came from. The constriction came from being unsafe in the past. But now as you sit with it, you are safe. Your mind is going to tell you you're dying and you're going to feel like you're dying. 
But the whole process of somatic work is knowing that you're not dying, that you are safe <laughs> and you can be with these sensations, mm. which is so cool. And, you know, it's definitely a process in the beginning. You feel you. And, and I often say, I feel like I'm dying, but I know I'm not. <laughs> and there again, it's hearkening back to that kind of stoic view of our emotions that can be of service when you inherently feel things when you have an emotional response to things think it feel it that's the part of sensing it process it what meaning do i choose to give it what meaning am i accepting of it accepting can be a positive or negative thing are you accepting with the limitation or are you accepting with the possibility process it release it just let it go you know and that's mm -hmm. a very can seem somewhat simplistic view of well, just let it go but that's a potential and, well, it's not just let it go. It's a, a process, right? Yeah. It's like the whole. Yeah. Yeah. But ultimately, if you keep holding on to the part that keeps you stuck and you keep ruminating about it, you keep seeing the potential in the unsafe point. If you keep seeing the potential in possibly being hurt and possibly feeling bad, you're going to keep projecting into that energy of that potential. And that energy is going to attract in. That energy is going to be the reality you see. That energy is eventually just going to become the truth. Mm -hmm. A truth. And it's not to say that you can't also project that energy into a different sensing of truth. Yeah. Just be open to that potential. Where do I truly want to be? And what's keeping me from being there? Your own patterns. <laughs> <laughs> Your own patterns. And that's not to shame our patterns and be an asshole to them. Yeah, for sure. Because we can create those patterns that become more effective or we can create those patterns that are ineffective or less effective. Yeah. I like that. The Yeah. What's the other word that I really like? Um, discern. That's, that's a word yeah. I love. And effective and effective. Exactly. And yeah. there's no shame in those words. There's no judgment. It's just like, is it working for you? Is it not? That to me, I'm going to point out an interesting point here in an instance I related to this week. I've been looking at this marketing app, marketing tool. I can't recall the name right off the top of my head that analyzes the SEO value of your post headlines, your blog headlines, you know, podcast title headlines to measure the effectiveness of the impact it's going to make on others. And one of the factors it evaluates is how much it pushes an emotional button. Mm -hmm. I found that astounding that we literally are putting that much attention on pushing the emotional buttons. Now, that in and of itself can become a trauma response from me as I look at that. How am I reacting to that? But the fact then is if we effectively leverage that potential, then you can also use this tool to say this might be a little bit more negatively loaded or pushing a pressure point that causes that ripple to go out and trigger someone else. Mm-hmm. It's all in how you look at the overall potential of it, utilizing it. But I just was fascinated by that. You know, to me, in a lot of areas, I was fascinated by how much weight we put on the effectiveness of what we're communicated based on what it may or may not emotionally trigger in someone else. I'm how not surprised. Of our responses then. Yeah, I'm not surprised. But yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That can go down a lot of different trails. That can also become weaponized in some ways. That's a, that's a thing of mind this week is being mindful, you know, is 
partially being responsible for how you are projecting out towards others. Yeah. You know, sure. Are you doing that in a way that's managing in a way that's of service to yourself first and of others? Yeah. But I'm not surprised that they, that they're trying, you know, emotions are. Emotions. It was just interesting. I know that's a curveball today, but it's relevant because it does signal some of these things that often slip out of our awareness that allow us to move into that denial and that sometimes becomes that regressed state of trauma that mm-hmm. we're just simply not aware of yet. Yeah. You know, I actually am so interested in like ethical marketing and and yeah. just how we share things, even when we market things that we're selling. Um, this is totally unrelated, but still important, I think, where we don't like trauma bond with our clients yeah. and we're not like not selling yeah. them on their pain points all the time, which yeah. I used to do. I'm not going to lie, because that's what you're taught all the time. And then I was like, why am I doing this? We're, we are taught, you know, in the power of story. And so often what do we do. Yeah, this is this is one that comes to my forefront and I tend to shy away from it just because I have a lot of thoughts on how that keeps that energetic pattern, that energetic trauma alive in us. Mm -hmm. But if we're constantly going to that point, are we empowering somebody to move beyond? If you're constantly going to the pain point, then how do we reconcile that with telling people or selling to the fact that? what you think you become. If you're constantly thinking about the pain point and you're constantly dragging that energy back, then how are you becoming something else? If that's the point of reference, you continually root yourself in. Yeah. You get attached to it. It's just like when I ask myself, what do I enjoy about being a victim? It's the attachment to the trauma. And, and that's why I kind of started being mindful about how I share even my own story of if I share my own story and my own all kinds of different traumas from a non-reactive place in myself, Mm -hmm. then that feels good. Then I can share that and I can talk about, you know, what did I learn from it? How did I grow from it? Um, That's kind of the positive part of it instead of, Oh, the heaviness and like the pain of that's what I need to process on my own. That's not what I need to process with (laughs) others. You know, like that's where, my own processing comes in and I don't need to outsource it to my audience or wherever I'm sharing it. <laughs> That's to me where it becomes really relevant in illustrating that point. Are you going back to that reactive state or are you finding what was exposed to me recently at that neutral ground? You know, I was kind of kicked in a way, nudged, nudged, made aware of that point recently in a conversation I shared that finding that neutral ground sometimes releases us from that reactive point, allows us to accept it, allows us to release the shame. You know, we're not in that ruminating stage. That reactivity starts when you're in all of these judgments Mm -hmm. rather than discerning. Yeah, it's like more constriction onto the constriction (laughs) when you're like judging it. And from a somatic point of view, Um, One of the tools that I love to use is bouncing back and forth between in your body constriction and openness, like areas that Mm. feel open and flowing and constriction. And that's what our body naturally does. It's like, it's called pendulation. And I'm doing this because it's, it's like a pendulation motion and eventually the pendulum stops in the middle in the balance, you know, and that's exactly what we're doing. 
And that's how that drama, that what we label drama so often plays out. It's such a back and forth. It's back and forth inside yourself, back and forth between others. Let's look at that a little bit at that pendulation, you know, how to sense some of that, because you did relate that in such a somatic experience. How do we allow that then to pull that into our forefront so we can become more aware of it? You mean, how do we practice it? Yeah. Yeah. What's a good way to put that into practice? Let's frame it that way. Yeah. Well, it's literally, you know, you get triggered in the moment. You feel that constriction in your body. You stay with it for a moment, but not too long to the point where you're overwhelmed. And then you literally scan your body for an area that doesn't feel constricted. For me, usually it's my hands and my feet. And so I'll go there just mentally, just sense my hand and just stay with my hand. And then when I come back to my, say, my chest where it was constricted, it already starts to shift and I'll notice the shift Then I'll go back to my hand and I just go back and forth. Mm. And usually what I notice after this process with clients is they'll have, you know, like you'll notice that you'll actually notice that breath or that openness and then they'll just sense openness, like the constriction yeah. moves through. So, Marina, if you have a client that says, but that to me seems like overthinking, you know, you're asking me to think about my hands and then back to my heart and, you know, to my rest of my body. How do I then move that into a state where it doesn't become that rumination and overthinking? So it's it's more of focus. I would call it focus, like a meditative focus. So I'll have the person actually like close their eyes and just notice like. Notice that. Stay with their chest, their sensation. That's interesting. Often becomes a valid answer in that circumstance if you're experiencing it. Hmm, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, it could be. <laughs> yeah. And if that's that response, that's it's great. Neutral, you know, that neutrality doesn't have to be a stigmatized, restrictive thing in and of itself. It doesn't have to create that resistance. Yeah. And it's great if you get to the point where you say that's interesting. That's an interesting sensation. In the beginning, (laughs) it's usually like, whoa, like this is intense. You know, I can't stay there. Start yawning. Yeah, for sure. That consistency, that, you know, repetitiveness is just just like everything else. We practice it until it becomes the new pattern. And we might try to go as we stay with sensation, go back up to the mind. But that, you know, it's just like meditation. You come back, you come back to your breath, they tell you. But in this case, you come back to your body. And that sensing in the heart, you know, that tells us when things are restricting that very real tightening of the chest when we feel when we're anxious Mm -hmm. is that heart reaction. Mm -hmm. You know, is that heart action in the full physical sense? Those electrical magnetic currents radiate through our body, head to toe throughout in a big circle that is somewhat repetitive in its pattern. That's just the natural flow, the best we know of energy in the universe. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to me to study things of that scientific nature. And when we illustrate that pattern, you see the picture of these little magic circles going round and round. Mm-hmm. It's a thought to look at, you know, and are you fighting the way those circles are flowing? Are you moving with them? Are you allowing those circles to tighten in on you, creating that perception they're tightening in on you, enforcing that perception? Are you just accepting them and letting them go, knowing that they'll come back around? They will come back (laughs) for sure. No, and if you 
kind of get in that pattern and habit of beating it up and shaming it, that's what's going to come back around. It's like loading up the little trolley car that goes around the track. You know, just in Chicago, riding the train, call it the loop. You know, it comes back around. You get on the loop, you eventually come back where you started. What you step onto that train with, if you take it with you, you step off the train with. If you leave it on the train and get back on, nobody picks it up. It's going to still be there. I love your metaphors. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I'm trying to find that bigger picture. How do you relate that? Now in Chicago, if you leave anything on the train, there's a good chance it's not going to be there when you get back. Well, then that's the projection, right? <laughs> and that, that's picks what up. happens in life. So yes. often we project that out there. It's another good metaphor. We leave it on that train. Somebody else picks it up and they take it somewhere else. Totally. That's the trauma response. Mm-hmm. They're picking it up. Yeah. Which train are you getting on, baby? <laughs> I think that's a great point to kind of leave things on today. Yeah, that's yeah. I like that analogy for sure. (laughs) This has truly been a great, inspiring conversation. I thank you, Marina. You've brought such great insight to me today. And I have a whole new respect and appreciation for those that do the somatic body work. You know, you've allowed me to look at this in a whole new view today. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. And all your analogies are also definitely staying with me. (laughs) Well, I would love to do this again. This has been such a fun chat. I feel like we could go on for another hour. For sure. I would love to schedule that. Thank you. I am so grateful and so appreciative of you. Thank you so much for having me on. This was great. Where can we go to reach out to you, Marina, and experience all of this wonderful insight and connect with tuning into that somatic response? Easiest places on Instagram, just at marina.y.t. Fantastic. I thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for sure. Have a beautiful rest of your day. You too. Thank you. (laughs) Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, once famously said, from error to error, one discovers their entire truth. Repressed memories were a cornerstone of Freud's psychoanalytical frame. He believed that people repressed memories that were too difficult to confront, particularly traumatic memories, and expelled them from conscious thought. This idea has launched an enduring controversy in the field of psychology. The notion that people repress traumatic memories that can be recovered in therapy. There's ample evidence that people remember traumatic experiences even if they wish they could forget. And that memory is more malleable than previously believed. Outside of the repressed memory debate, people may refer to regression colloquially, describing the tendency to push difficult feelings down, avoiding a confrontation and examination of certain emotions and beliefs. Until expressed, these emotions linger. They're in our bodies, buried alive, later coming forth in progressively uglier ways. Marina and I have talked about how to recognize some of these telltale signs of repressed trauma and their lingering effects. Now we'd like to hear what you found meaningful in today's episode. Drop us a note by tagging us on social media at The Light Inside Podcast or share us with a friend who you feel might find meaning in this insightful discussion. As always, we're grateful for you, our valued listening community. If you found outstanding value in our show, leave us a review anywhere you enjoy your favorite podcasts. Tune in next week as we share a conversation with best-selling author and consciousness coach, Demetria Burby. 
exploring how self-knowing is the path to discovering the often ignored and uncovered parts of ourselves. Tune in to find out how on The Light Inside.